Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Our guest today is attorney and author James Stuber. After earning degrees in political science at UPenn in Columbia and his law degree at Georgetown, James served as chief legislative assistant to a senior member of the U.S. House of Representatives. James then embarked on a career in private practice, but in 2014, he returned to public policy as he began research on his book, What If Things Were Made in America Again? In his book, published in 2017, James chronicles the sad history of America's policies of sending our factories and jobs overseas and the resulting destruction of lives, families, and communities across America. As James delved into these questions, he recognized the outsized part that China has played in these events. In his book, James devotes an entire chapter to China's threat, not only the economic and military security threat to the United States, but also to the rest of the world, developed and undeveloped alike. James proposes that American citizen consumers have it in their power not only to reclaim those lost jobs, but also to bring an end to our economic support for China's threat to the world order. As some of our listeners know, I have been acutely attuned to the challenge China has posed for a long time. James has followed the growth of that threat in recent years, and fortunately, the growing awareness of the China issue among policymakers and the American public. We look forward to him sharing what he has learned with us and where we need to go from here. Full disclosure, I've interviewed Jim before for Worth Magazine. I wrote a review of that book on worth.com. Search for the title. I'm interviewing a friend, not a third party that I don't know. Jim and I have decided that we're going to do this based on today. We're going to start with the China relationship today and work our way backwards over a series of podcasts. How many we do, we're not sure, but we're going to we're going to open it up with today. Because if you look at the headlines today, Jim, nothing but nothing is as important to America, it seems, as the China relationship. I just did a casual Amazon search. I think they're like 20 titles if you Google China threat on Amazon right now. Everybody's writing about this. You were obviously doing it before most other people. What's made the headline so powerful? What's made the China threat so in our face right now? What's going on? Well, I think... Uh couple of things, Jonathan. And by the way, thank you. I value our treasure, our, our friendship, and our mutual interest in all of this. And it is gratifying to see it all coming coming to light now. So the first part of my answer is that the Chinese were very good at hiding their hand. They were following the art of war uh, adage that when you're weak, look strong, and when you're strong, look weak. So they were not letting the world know what they were up to. And so it really got everybody kind of lulled into this idea that, you know, Francis Fukuyama had popularized mm -hmm. uh, in 1999. That, the end of history. Yes, and that Western democracy and capitalism was the inexorable result of history, and it was all going to turn out that way. So we had that mindset at the time, and then that just played right into their hands of hiding what they were doing. But I'd say the second high-level thing that's happened is that not only have they shown their hand, and I think that, as you and I have discussed, the 2008 financial crisis emboldened them to show their hand because yeah. they really were convinced that socialism was better than capitalism. And so they said, hey, we're going to really let you know what we're up to. But since then, especially since 2012, when Xi Jinping came to power, we have seen really a seismic change, a shift back toward the Mao era with uh, Xi Jinping becoming, you know, the one-man ruler, 
and imposing you know far more control over right. the Chinese than we had seen. So those are the two main threads that I think are going on. Basically, the, the problem has gotten worse and the problem has come out in the open. Okay. Question here. Um, one thing I am reminded of is my favorite B.B. King song. I have many, but one of them is his, You Played Your Hand Too Soon. <laughs> he has a great, great lyric on that. So what I want to know at this point is how much of this is she, the new prime premier? Would this have happened if he didn't obtain uh, the, the absolute power and the Politburo didn't give him the authority that it's given him, you know, for life tenancy and uh, permanent emperorship? Was there a contender? I mean, I, there are so many other Chinese people that he's put in jail, you know, who are rivals to him in the intelligence services. Let's say they had gotten to power. Is it just him or is it really the, the entire Chinese leadership? I mean, the, where's the business community in this Jack Ma and everybody else can't be pleased at what's going on? So I need to know that first in order to understand w w why the threat is now. Is it one man's thing or was it really a policy they always had? Well, I think that that she represented a uh, group within the the communist structure of the traditionalists. You know, she is a, a what they call a princeling. His yes. father was was involved in the original revolution, yep. and so there was always that strain in the party of uh, these these authoritarian traditionalists who would prefer that the the party go in that direction. So I think they were always there, and they were not necessarily you know in or out of power. But I think he just represented that wing of the party, if you will. Would there could there have been another C? You know, we don't. I don't know. I've not heard of anyone else in particular that someone said, "Oh, well, that could have been C." But there could have been another C. But that said, I think that it goes back to the individual theory of history. And you know, what if yeah. there had been no? What if there had been no Gorbachev? So I do think that uh, C as an individual took that wing of the party and then just carried that body of thought forward. Well, this might be a good time to tell the listeners my pet theory and uh, hear your response to that. I think she knows what's going on, that China is rotten, that it's rotten to the core. And there's so much literature to this. There's so many writers telling us about the debt, the environment, the political corruption, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's a nonstop litany of, of ills and woes. China Evergrade in the, the fiasco uh, of the housing is just one of them. Uh, the luck-in coffee shop, you know, bankruptcies, the fake, you know, numbers that are coming out for all the NASDAQ-listed Chinese companies. I could go on for a, an hour. I won't even bother. Let's say he knows how bad all of this is. Wouldn't you, if you knew that, think I better seize total power now for the Communist Party because the shit storm is going to come? Nobody knows is better than me, and I'm going to make sure that nobody gets steps out of line because the shit's really going to hit the fan. Is that possible? Oh, it's, I think it's quite plausible. Absolutely. You know, when when uh, Tiananmen Square occurred in, in 1989, and they you know they clamped down on everyone. I think that that's all vivid in, in their memories. Mm -hmm. It was a different cause mm -hmm. at the time because back then the the Fukuyama theory seemed to be working. You know, there were these these strong currents of a desire for democracy that were flowing in China at the time, and and that's what they had to tamp down. But it's interesting to compare. You know, Gorbachev, his response to that rot that was in the Soviet system 
was to institute uh, perestroika and the economic opening and you know kind of loosen things up. Deng did the same thing with his reform and opening in 1978, and then he confirmed it in 1992 on his southern tour. But he was very clever because he adopted just enough capitalism to get the economy going, but of course he kept the, the control on the political side. So I have to say that I agree that there's a very good argument to be made that C um, sees what's, what's going to be coming and he just wants to be prepared for it. But on the other hand, I can't say that we, maybe Jinping knows, I still believe there are a lot of true believers in China who, in, in their upper echelons, who believe that socialism is the way to go and that, and that this is all working. So I think you've got quite a right. con conflict you know, among realists and idealists inside the Communist Party. Well, why are they so obsessed right now with reigning in their own productive business community? The community that has delivered uh, unparalleled economic growth for you know two decades, created a middle class in China, <laughs> lifted six hundred million people out of poverty. Uh, yes, there's income income inequality that's beyond you know beyond belief. One percent of the people in China control something like you know thirty to sixty percent of the assets. It's unclear, but it's an enormous number. It's Latin American style inequality. Okay, so they know all this, but why start biting the hands that's been feeding them? I think it's simple. They uh, saw that people like Jack Ma were getting too much power, and that they were uh, a countervailing threat to them. I, the one thing that has come through loud and clear to me in all of my research is that the one singular thing driving everything in China is keeping the Communist Party in power. That's the end all and be all. It's the alpha and the omega. Oh. It's keeping the Communist Party in power. And you yeah. can't have people like Jack Ma running around saying that, oh, the bureaucracy is rotten. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not going to last. So I think that... The first main thing is that, uh, that they were clamping down on these uh, rich capitalists yeah. because they were a threat to their power. And then secondly, again, I do think... Which is, that the, which is this, no different than they did in Russia, you know, which is what Putin mm -hmm. did with the oligarchs. So he jailed yeah. a quarter up or whatever. <laughs> you know, he threw half his friends in jail, made them divest of all their assets. I mean, it, it really is sort of a communist party... Uh, um, mow the grass Israeli style how do we treat Gaza kind of thing you know every once in a while we have to mow these you know, <laughs> mow these these very wealthy billionaire capitalists down before they the grass grows too high and they threaten us is that yeah. is that yeah they're getting too uppity and they're, yeah. and they're a real threat I mean this that that's a yeah. threat uh, that, that, that they're going to be you know because Jack Ma was calling the the party elite out but then again uh, I do believe that they're that part of what's driving Xi Jinping is communist ideology and that he's looking and he's saying all of this is inconsistent with what we say we're standing for now that maybe that's real politic and he wants to be able to claim to be for the people you know before they they rise up with their pitchforks I, but i think it also may be that he's just going well that thing you know deng's uh idea went too far we're going to rein this back in and we're going to be more like what we said we were right from the beginning Okay, that's really coherent and smart. Let's talk about why that bleeds over into the military. You know, James, I have this vision and I've had it for a really long time. It's kind of a nightmare one. So let me pretend that, you know, I'm on a couch and you're a therapist and I'll tell you what it is. Okay. <laughs> I, I see all I've seen for decades, all these Americans as ants 
and they're crawling all over to Walmart and Kmart and ordering from Amazon and buying all the stuff from China for decades and decades and taking all the money out of their pockets and bringing it you know, to Walmart and the mass merchandisers and almost everybody else in America who's made everything in China. And the Chinese take this money and they start building nuclear weapons and tanks and aircraft carriers and ICBMs and now supposedly this hypersonic missile, all of it aimed at killing and slaughtering and putting out of business and the end of ending their lives, all the little ants that gave them all this money, that gave them this power to buy these weapons. Why would they do this? Why would anybody turn nuclear weapons and hypersonic ballistic missiles on the very ants that fed them? Can you explain that? I believe it's because they had academic and corporate elites telling them the opposite story, that this was just fine <laughs> and that we should be going for the lowest price. We were going to be creating democracy in China. Yeah. And so uh, don't worry, you can send your money over there. And all those trade deficits don't don't really matter. That's just the problem with that is just uh, Chinese underconsumption and and overinvestment. Uh, that's really, you know, so you had all these bogus economic theories being thrown out there by some pure academics and by some uh, faux think tanks that were really corporate fronts uh, throwing all this stuff out there. And so uh, that's, you know, the poor, the poor American public were just led, led down the road. They were totally, to terribly misled. And anybody like yeah. and anybody like you, Jonathan, out there was just seen as some fringe guy that, well, what are you talking about? You know, that doesn't fit economic theory. I of course, know. <laughs> the people in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio knew that those economic theories weren't working in their lives and with the facts they saw on the ground. And so they voted for the one man who who said he was for them, and it was Donald Trump. We're going to get to that. Not not in this episode, but, yeah. <laughs> but, we're gonna, but anyway. But at some point, even the academic and the military, you know, we have an aristocracy in this country of you know very smart people. They're in the military. They're in foreign policy. They're in economics. They had to see that a tremendous amount of that money was going into the military. You know, that, yes, the cities were thriving and yes, you know, Tesla had a factory built there and yes, they opened up Starbucks. I mean, I, I'm not unaware that China became very Western in its consumer orientation and Gucci and, you know, and Louis Vuitton are there. I, I'm fully aware that Chinese cities, you know, are very modern, lovely places full of amenities that the West, you know, the West has given them. But at the same time, you know, they really armed to themselves to the teeth. Mm -hmm. Did anybody think that, you know, this was like, you know, I actually wrote about this. I wrote a long time ago <laughs> that this this was reminded me of the Third Avenue L train in New York that was dismembered somewhere in like late 1930s. And all the steel was shipped to Japan. And that steel came back in, in, in bombers and, and aircraft carriers to, at Pearl Harbor and elsewhere to destroy the American forces. You know, we sold them scrap metal and they turned it. I don't know if you've ever heard that story, but it is documented or supposedly it is. I had not, but I'm not. Yeah, it, this sounds like the same sort of situation. Didn't anybody sort of say, well, maybe we shouldn't send them so much money because they've spent like two thirds of it, you know, on, on, on militarization and building an army and a, and a navy and an air. And now they are, in fact, ch challenging us everywhere. 
What's up with that? Nobody saw that? Well, some people did. So, for example, our I believe our military and our intelligence communities did, at least for the, recently, say in the last five years, they've been coming out with report after report uh -huh. about the Chinese military uh, buildup. And, and also the buildup actually did only just really get going in the last five or five or ten years. And you had think tanks like RAND, you know, they were they were watching this. There's also another uh, organization that was created when Congress let China have permanent trade relations and get into the World Trade Organization, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Council. Hmm. And they have published periodic reports ever since, you know, since 2001. And they they they're calling these things out as well, but these these were voices crying in the wilderness. And I'm reminded that even uh, during the Trump administration, when you had uh, hawks like Peter Navarro who were who yeah. were getting this right, yeah, you had Steve Mnuchin in the Treasury Department representing yeah. Wall Street, and and still in the face of this of of the exquisite logic of what you just said saying, no, 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 we, we've got to keep sending this money over there. Uh, and, and one could say, yeah, because Wall Street was lining their pockets and all these deals. Yeah, capitalism really does do that, doesn't it? It really is, a, you know, the, when they talk about global capital and international capital, it really is. It really sort of just figures it, it could make its money and uh, the state be damned or national security be damned. I guess they think they'll go to the south of France or something. I'm not sure where they're going to head when, you know, China unleashes, unleashes its fury uh, on Taiwan or some other part of the uh, of the world. But it just seems so incredibly short-sighted. Well, it is, you know, and that's a topic for another day, I think, Jonathan, is that the, the very short-term and individualistic uh, interests that are being served here you know, somebody on Wall Street, all he cares about is that third house and retiring to, uh, you know, and, and so he, <laughs> that that those are the interests that are in play, uh, not national security, not whether America survives as a democracy. Right. OK, let's go back to contemporary China. You know, I've looked around the world uh, in the last couple of years and I've seen the Arab Spring happen. I've seen, uh, you know, Putin and the Russian situation develop as it's developed. And now I've seen China uh, developing the way the way it's it's developing under Xi. And yeah. I draw one conclusion: if you've never had democracy, you're never going to have democracy. You know, I have a little quiz on my friends. I ask them, when was the Magna Carta? And very, very few of my friends actually know it was like 1251. <laughs> and I point out to them that means that the Western concept of reigning in a king, having a say, having your thoughts count, and having political power goes back to the 13th century in the Western mind. Nobody in China has ever voted for anybody ever. They've only had an emperor tell them what to do. Mm. Nobody in Russia really ever voted for anybody. They had a czar tell them what to do. Nobody in the Arab world, the Islamic world, really mm. ever voted for anybody. They had an imam tell them, or a caliph, or a satrap, whatever, tell mm. them what to do. And so here we are, you know, in the second decade of the 21st century, and all of these nascent groups are screaming out, I want to be heard, Arab Spring, Russia, China, 
and they're just not able to get a toehold, are they, in any of this thing? So it's not really hard to see how she and China can just go back and be a lifetime emperor because he really never had to worry about a democratic movement. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there was quite a movement going on, uh, you know, in 1989. Okay. And I think that there, uh, from what I've read, there has been, you know, a lot of internal thought in China of people who really would like to have a constitutional government, a constitution that says, we, the people, have decided these are the rules. You know, that's around. And I think that part of the reason was they could see it at work in Hong Kong. They could see it at work in Taiwan. They could see it at work in South Korea. And so um, Mm -hmm. I think that um, Mm -hmm. that there is, and there might even be something inherent in human nature, you know, that that would like to have that. But this desire for constitutional government really is there. Now, whether they can pull it off or not is another question. I think that we, looking at history, we planted it in Japan and in Germany and the Brits planted it in India so they you know they kind of got uh, like a a transplant of wine you know whatever they call that thing when they plug the the wine right into the the, the root it got put in there yeah um but, but I, I could but see it, how this if if Tiananmen Square hadn't happened uh, it might have been messy but I I could see that it you know it, it, it might have happened but I think you are right that there is this seems to be an inexorable force toward one-man rule you see it with Putin you see it with C you see it in Turkey, that that's a very strong countervailing force that seems to actually be uh, prevailing. Especially in places that really have no democratic background. Right. It's so, really, yeah, it's hard to transplant democracy on on countries that have just never experienced it. It's, it seems it's impossible, exactly. So she knows this. I mean, he knows better than anybody that, you know, the Chinese have never voted in their entire lives, even for, you know, for anybody. So, you know, it's not hard for him to, to con, you know, consolidate his power, you know, in, in that regard. Um, but what effect does that have on the negotiating, his negotiating power vis-a-vis America? Um, you know, obviously, he's already seen two two presidents, one come, one go. Uh, you know, if he's there for life, he might see another four. You know, we're five, you know, oh, come yeah. and go. I mean, you know, so is he is he just like figuring, oh, you know, I'll I'll, uh, I'll wait these idiots out, you know, because God knows they'll probably change their mind about something tomorrow? Yes. Yes. Absolutely right. Please and, explain. And, and, and also it gives him the power not just to do that, but to do a lot of things that our especially when we're so divided against each other, that our system just doesn't let one do. So if Xi Jinping decides there's going to be, be a Belt and Road Initiative, there is one. Right. <laughs> you know, and this, this multi-trillion dollar yeah. effort, like, can, we, can we imagine what it would take in the United States to get a consensus around something like that? So he, he does have a much more powerful hand to play. And then also, as you say, uh, you know, especially now that he's getting his way, you know, with this Congress they just had in November, they pretty much opened the door for him to stay around as long oh, as he'd yeah. like. Oh, yeah. Uh, so well, this, they this, played this, a long game. 
Yeah, well, there's never going to be one dissenter allowed in there. There's, that, that's my, one of my favorite pictures of the 300 people, you know, in the Politburo sitting around in that fantastic hall. And I know that not one of those people is allowed to say, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. So, no, you, you just reminded me of, I've seen video of Saddam Hussein was in power. And there was a big room full of people like that. And he had people coming in and just escorting them out of the room. To their death. You knew where they were going. <laughs> and that was a powerful message to the other 299 people sitting in that room. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, almost like why bother to have them there? I mean, it's obviously, a, you know, a show. It's a yeah. show. It's a, it's a dumb show is, is really what it is. It's a, it's a kabuki theater, you know, to borrow a Japanese art form. Okay, so... He's playing. They're playing quote the the long game. But interestingly, the one what what is the one thing that has united the United States Senate, uh, if I'm not mistaken? The the only thing I can think of that the Democrats and Republicans united on, other than to pass a budget, which is really pro forma, was the boycott of products uh, and con companies that are going to deal with and, and please you know the Uyghurs. I don't know how to pronounce the region. How, what's yeah. the region? Xinjiang. Yeah, uh, Xinjiang. Yes. Xinjiang. Okay, thank you. So, but it is Uyghurs, correct? Yes. Okay. And they're only they're one of like three Muslim minorities there, but they're the main one. Yep. Okay. So didn't that the United States Congress that hasn't united on one thing? Yes, and Could that is a great sign of hope. I mean, it's ironic, and you you wonder about that, but uh, you're right. I mean, that actually passed the Senate on a voice vote. <laughs> and then just let me add to that that last uh, June of last year, Chuck Schumer wanted to. He had this big China competition bill he wanted to get through to try to gear us up to be more competitive with China. And that that passed the Senate on a bipartisan basis. I mean, that wasn't, you know, unanimous by any means, but a good number of Republicans, you know, voted for that. Now, but then again, I hate to throw a little water <laughs> on this parade. There is a wing of the Republican Party that are now chastising those Republicans who dared, you know, to jump on board with that. So there are even some limits to that. But China does seem to be, you know, the recognition of this China threat does seem to be something that's that's even, you know, crossing party lines now, which which, which gives me hope. Oh, especially that's what I'm getting at. It really seems in our face. I mean, you can't deny this. What Biden continued Trump's tariffs. That's yep very strange thing to do because most economists think that those are counterproductive. I'm not smart enough to know whether they are or they aren't, but I am amazed that, you know, Mr. China basher Donald Trump uh, mm. instituted a policy and Mr., you know, let's throw the baby in the bathwater out. Mm. Joe Biden says, no, we'll keep this going. What's yeah. that about? Well, he, you know, the Biden administration has has both schools of thought inside it now. And there is a pretty strong uh, school of thought that recognizes the China threat. And then there are also a good number of the old-fashioned globalists who, you know, and the ones who think that it's all going to be just fine. And the, and there, it's terrible. You know, there's a fight kind of going on within the administration on all of this. So it's been it's been a bit patchy. And so the, you, you do see uh, him doing some of these things, like keeping the 301 tariffs in place. You go, wow, that's great. But then here's a great example. Trump had signed an executive order saying, here are 300 drugs that we, essential medicines that we need, <laughs> and we're going to carve them out of the group purchasing article of the World Trade Organization. It's this, this thing that said government purchasing. It says, 
if you're a government and you're and you signed on to this, mm-hmm. that means that you treat each other's stuff as domestic. So there's 45 countries plus another 15, and we we say that if they bid on a project in the United States, they're treated the same as a domestic company. Mm. Okay. Now Trump said. Well, our dependence on essential medicines on China is terrible, so we're going to exempt 300 uh, medicines from that government purchasing uh, agreement. And Biden came in and reversed it. He got the pharmaceutical companies got got their ear, and the the U.S. Trade Representative got totally blindsided. And so now uh, that's been reversed, and, and we and somebody from one of these countries, India can say, here, government, you can't prefer American medicines. You've got to buy ours, put ours on equal footing. Don't start me on that now, because I'm really <laughs> obsessed about the about, about the pharmaceutical industry and our <laughs> dependence on China and India. And oh. I'm pursuing that on with a friend on a lot of other levels. So it's very interesting that you brought that up. Was there any reason, though, that it made sense to do that? Because we're not in a position to start manufacturing these things overnight. I mean, you know, it's nice for Donald Trump to come in and, you know, create some sort of a, you know, barrier or throw a gauntlet down. But if you're not, if you can't make these things in their essential medicines, maybe we should, you know, have a policy to make them here, but not do that overnight. I mean, is there, was there any logic to reversing that? No. So okay. uh, all, the, all the policy did was to say that the government could prefer a okay. domestic medicine if it were available. I see. But it may not be available. That's it what, may not be. But that's if, what you have, if you have that, that government procurement standing out there, okay. then you, you as a private company may stand up a, a, a facility to make those medicines because you know – that you're going to have the government as a customer, and that you're going to be right. they they can give you preference over over the uh, you know the foreign makers. Okay, so Biden Biden's a bozo on this one and didn't on do that one. He is. It on just one. seems to be so clear that it was just a matter of you know, the influence of the of the big pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, well, they're everywhere. They 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 really do dominate you know do, dominate us. Uh, and uh, maybe we need uh, she here to get some of those executives cut down to size. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't even say it. <laughs> oh, okay. China style, like they could disappear oh. for the head of uh, head of some of these places could be disappeared for a few weeks, right? And send a hostage note saying they're fine. <laughs> yeah, and that reminds me. You mentioned the the military buildup previously, and that's another strong influence in China. So we've got the party, and then you've got the military, which is really an arm of the party. You know, yes, People's Liberation Army. And you know they are are very national, very very nationalistic, and I'm fascinated and, and really frightened by the analogies one could make between 1930s Japan and yep. China today, and all of the more than saber rattling that's going on, on on the part of the military, who you know many of them really believe they should just go to war with the United States the way they did with India in 1962, and let's just get this over with. Yeah, I'm sure that that exists. Well, I have a very sad feeling that Crimea was the Sudetenland. Um, and when the West, when Putin went into Crimea and the West didn't do what it could have done to stop that or be outraged or crazed, uh, she took a look at that as yep. the same way that uh, our friend Adolf took a look at the you know, the West reaction to Sudetenland and said, "Well, you can have the Sudetenland, you know, but that really wasn't his his end game. It was a yep. lot more, and that's why he went into Hong Kong. I mean, he just 
took the Western world's reaction to this, and yes. he just said, you know, okay, you know, Crimea is Hong Kong. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's basically with once hours. Somebody took it away from us. A lot of these people speak our language. You know, they trade with us. Uh, they have loyalty to us. Let's just go in there now and uh, and we seize it. Forget what that treaty we promised those those idiotic British when they left that uh, we'd leave it alone with separate rules for another you know couple of fifty decades. years. Yeah, years. Right. yeah. But we, I don't think we're going to do that the same way that uh, that uh, the Third Reich didn't respect the Yugoslav borders or the Czech borders, I should say. Yeah. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Really? Well, you said we didn't even rehearse this. You <laughs> no, I mean that's I've I've given that a lot of thought. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that's why we're doing the show. We think alike. Maybe we should just do a monologue. <laughs> but I mean, it's so emboldening to to these these folks when when we uh, stand sit on our hands when something like that happens. And well, another example is uh, during the Obama administration, China was taking these reefs that weren't even. Yep. Yeah, visible at at high tide and turning them into like stationary aircraft carriers in the South South China Sea, we didn't do a thing. Yeah, well, we did, and now we've done. We, now we have the pact oh. with, with, with you know with Japan and and Australia. We've created a, like a NATO alliance over there. We're rallying other groups, and you know, we, no, we didn't do anything then. What were we going to do? Send send the send the navy through there and pull the things down? I mean, that's war. So yeah, we didn't do anything then, but we certainly haven't been sitting on our hind feet here regarding well, Southeast Asian threat. I mean, they're pretty nervous now. We've really rattled. And what as I read, read yesterday, Japan signed its own defense treaty with Australia, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's a very recent development, though. Yeah, it is. People, yeah, people are really just finally waking up to all of this. But again, it's partly because China has been so emboldened and so showing their hand. So if, Aust- if Australia had the audacity to call for an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus, then China just started boycotting Australia. We're not going to buy any more of your coal. We'll show you. Coal, they boycotted their Merlot. <laughs> yeah, they, they, everything, you know, yeah, you name it. I know. There's no more Merlot to be, to be had on the Chinese, the Chinese shows, and they really were enjoying that Merlot. You know, these recent developments have led thank goodness, you know, to these efforts to shore up, you know, to create, uh, well, shore up existing alliances and to, but it's, it's, you know, we're in, there's an arms race going on there now. And of course we saw they decided to buy our nuclear submarines. And now I see yeah. that they're going to be buying uh, tanks from us. And, you know, you're getting a, a much firmer alliance and I would see India even, you know, coming in on that yeah. as well. India, yeah. Japan, Australia. Um, question is, you know, is it too little, too late? Um, no, it's not too little, too late. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I don't think so. I think I, from, from some of the military analysis I've read is that the Chinese army is to a large degree a paper tiger. It is nowhere near the sophistication and weaponry that the West has. The, the planes aren't there. The aircraft carriers aren't there. Can they do damage? Absolutely. But let's be real here, James. The second that one bullet is fired in hostility in the Southeast Asia quarter the shipping stops i mean the, the world goes away it, the, the world collapses the very second that 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 happens you know yeah. there there there's no question that that's the case the minute this the shooting war starts if it ever starts it's it's over for the world i mean we're yes. really going to starve we're going to freeze we're going to starve it's over Yes, and I think that Xi Jinping recognizes that, but you've just reminded me of a a fascinating piece I saw recently where someone was explaining, so rather than do it that way, what the Chinese are doing is very clever. They'll go into an area and they will say, we are declaring this 
these new rules over this area that we are claiming is, is important to us for safety reasons or for, uh, you know, food safety or for something. And then, uh, then they tighten those rules. So that's the second step. And then they just claim it. Okay. We've got control over this. So like what, like it, Australia or Japan? I mean, where, well, where well, like, no, it'd be what? like Vietnam. They, where are they going? Where are they going to declare these, these food uh, security areas? Oh, well, the, say this, the South China Sea, for example. Oh, well, they've already uh, done that. Well, they haven't, you know, totally yet. You can, we can still all sail through there, but uh, they did it with their air defense uh, zone, you know, and so there are examples of how they've gone about this, where they basically uh, achieve effective control over an area. And then sometimes it's like in between what I just said and the true military intervention. Yeah. And so they will send these uh, fleets of uh, supposedly non-military, their uh, militia yeah. uh, ships, you know, in and take over uh, a fishing ground that, that belong to the Philippines. So they they have, they're being very clever to, to stop just short of those bullets you mentioned and still, you know, exercise control and still expand their territory. They're being very clever about it. I noticed recently, you know, they, so we're talking about the South China Sea, the Spratly Islands, but up in the north, the Paracel Islands that they took from the Vietnamese yeah. in 1974, talk about playing the long game. Right. And now they have declared that area to be a quote department. So there's, you know, this whole new political area that they're, they've created that they can say that's part of China. Yeah. Step by step. Yeah, that's what it, that, that's what it, it certainly it certainly seems to me and playing the long game with somebody who's there for life is a lot longer than, you know, the, than the five Australian premiers that are probably going to come and go. James, I want to thank you again for a really stimulating, interesting thing. And I urge readers to get a copy of What If Things Were Made in America Again by James Stuber. It's really interesting reading from a very, very present, smart man who will join us again for another Out of the Box podcast. Thank you, James. Thank you. Listeners. Thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.